Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, regular listeners, you may have spotted that we've changed our name. It's now Honey & Co. The Food Sessions. So if you hear this sound, it's just us making dinner. Well, that and the fact that we're not allowed to use our title anymore. It's just been a bit of a thing, but don't worry about it. We hope you enjoy the show. Hi, thank you so much for downloading our podcast, The Honey & Co. My name is Itamar Sulovic. Me and my wife have some restaurants in Fitzrovia and a couple of cookbooks. Ever since we opened our restaurant, we've been meeting so many incredible people who are cooking, who are making food, who are writing about food. And we just want to have a little bit more time with them. We invite our favorite people once a month or twice a month to our deli, Honey and Spice. And we sit down and have a longer chat we cook from their books and from their culture, and this is a recording of these talks. I hope you enjoy it. Tonight we're joined by Nick Saltmarsh from Hodmedod. Hodmedod, for those of you who don't know, are a company specializing in British pulses and grains, some of them old, some of them quite new to the market. All of them delicious and of tremendous quality. We were talking about which peas you're going to have on special occasions in Ethiopia. We were talking about beetles coming from Europe. And we were talking about the grains of the future. So if you want to know more about it, please keep on listening. We do these talks mostly for very selfish reasons. Uh, for me and Sarit, we just want to get to know a little bit more about... Uh, the things that interest us in the food world. And it is uh, mostly cooks that come here, but it's really interesting for us to have people who are kind of behind the scenes of the food world, the people that are kind of, you know, making this, this world work and making things that are very interesting. And I'm very, very pleased and happy to have Nick with us here from Hodmedod which I'm, I'm assuming everyone knows a little bit about Hodmedod and what they do. Uh, what you perhaps don't know is how excited we were when we first discovered what they do and how important it was for us and, and what we do. I think we got a sample of, of fresh broad beans a couple of years ago, I think four years ago. And maybe a, a small thing the size of a broad bean but for us it was such a huge deal because most of our working day is trying to source good quality ingredients and the, the things that is the thing that is hardest for us to find is 
pulses and, and, and grains and these things are such an important part of our cooking. So to know that someone out there is really not only getting, you know, not only is in touch with the entire production, but actually bring stuff that is top quality, that is local and is fresh was so exciting for us. And, and you will see, you will try later some of the things that we are able to do because, you know, because of this uh, supply that we get. But let's hear a little bit from Nick. How did you start there? I mean, this seems like such a niche occupation. Uh, I guess it is, yes. <laughs> um, how, how did you come to do it? Well, how I, did you come to I, and set I've it always been up? interested in food, and particularly in how food is produced and where it comes from. And I've always loved good food. And for me, part of good food is knowing where it comes from, knowing how it's been grown, how it's been produced, and ideally knowing the person who's done that. It's a very personal thing, I think, food. At, at university, I studied maths and philosophy, so nothing to do with food at all. But I was driven to spend my summers working on farms because I wanted to be doing something with food and something with my hands and the earth. And it was really through doing that that I decided that I wanted to spend my life working with food in different ways. So I, I did various things from foraging mushrooms and then more recently um, from about 15 years ago working for a small organisation that promoted local and sustainable food. So we worked on different projects trying to get more local food into schools and working with growers to get them working cooperatively, cooperatively together. And it was through one of those projects for this organisation that um, beans came into my life in a big way. <laughs> so we, we were asked by a, a group in Norwich, which was the Transition Town Group, which is a, a sort of community-led initiative to come up with responses to climate change. And the Transition Town Group in Norwich, they wanted us to help them understand what the most local and sustainable diet would look like for a city like Norwich that could be provided as much as possible for from the hinterland of the city, from the agricultural hinterland. So we looked at all aspects of the diet and some things were very easy. So there was already, I think over the last 10 to 20 years, there's been a, a growing awareness of the value of local production and being more connected to local producers and particularly so in areas like fresh vegetables and fruit and, and meat. And does this have an impact on actual farms or is it just kind of a London buzzword? Uh, it, it's not just a London buzzword so I mean we were not engaging with London at all in this project it was entirely to do with this this group in Norwich and I for much of my life have lived um, in rural East Anglia and found that you know there there's just as much appetite for local food it's maybe not as concentrated so in somewhere like London you get the concentration which makes it much more obvious but I think everywhere, and we find now through our customers who are buying our pulses and grains, they're all over the country. They're not just in London by any means. There are lots in London, but largely simply because there are lots of people in London. Um, but this, through this project, we looked at different types of food and, and with the fresh produce, vegetables and fruit and meat and dairy, there's already quite a lot of local production going on and finding its way into the city and there were fairly simple steps to try and find ways of increasing that but then we came up against um, dried goods like pulses and grains where actually certainly at that point there was much less awareness or even much less thought it was almost as though once something's in a packet people don't really think about where it comes from so much there's not such an obvious connection to 
this actually being a, a crop that is grown somewhere and has been harvested and produced in a certain way. So we got really interested in this and also really interested in the benefits of moving at least some of our protein consumption to more vegetable proteins and realising that most of the vegetable proteins available in our diet are imported. So a lot of them are soya based, a lot of the protein that goes into animal feed is also soya based. Um, and soya, a lot of soya comes from some of the most destructive farming in the world in South America on cleared rainforest. And other protein, vegetable proteins like what is bizarrely Britain's favourite way of eating beans, tins of baked beans, all those beans are imported, mainly from Canada and America, but also from China. And even Ethiopia produces beans that come to Britain to go into baked beans. And then we had the realisation that despite us importing most of the pulses that we eat, we're also growing pulses. We're growing the fava bean, or which is essentially a dried broad bean. And we're growing these beans. Farmers like growing them because they put fertility into the soil. They're great in a crop rotation. They're just a really good crop to grow, really beneficial. So farmers grow them, but because we're not eating them here, they're either exported, the best quality beans, uh, mainly to Egypt, but to other countries particularly in North Africa and the Middle East or they used as animal feed for livestock for cattle and even salmon a lot of farmed salmon is fed on these fava beans really yeah yes <laughs> so weird I mean this is just the just thinking about Britain sending fava beans to Egypt is just <laughs> the mind boggles it's it's it was a revelation when we we had this realization and we we just thought this is bizarre is there something wrong with these beans? Is there a reason we don't eat them? But then, you know, millions of Egyptians can't be wrong. They must be good beans. And we got our hands on some and tried them and realised they were a, a, a really good ingredient, both as whole beans but also as split beans. You can use them in, in all sorts of different ways. How, how did you, sorry, how did you get your hands on them? What, what? We, we got some from a farmer. <laughs> we, we went to a farmer and, who had harvested some beans and initially just got a, a bag of the whole beans pretty much as they come straight off the combine, you know, they're, they're a simple food, so they're easy to clean by hand if you're talking about a small amount. And we just made, we made a very, not like the beautiful hummus here, we made a very rough and ready hummus with whole beans that so had all the bits of skin in it rather than using the split beans. But it was still delicious. And we just thought, let's try seeing if people in this country would be keen to eat these beans that we're growing in this country. It just seemed like an obvious thing to try and put together so, and, and that was the start of of what then became a journey of discovery and work so how, how did farmers. how did you start how do you go about buying fresh beans? well so <laughs> so when we um we decided to do this trial project so this was all as part of this project and what we said to the the group in norwich was we'll do a trial to see if there's an appetite in in norwich and more, more widely in this country to eat these beans. So we went to one of the processors. There are big processors who buy the beans from farmers and they process them simply in terms of cleaning them up. And the, the most complex thing they do is, is splitting them, which involves taking the skin off the bean. And then the bean naturally splits into its two halves. Um, so we bought, we went to this processor and we said, can we buy half a ton of your split beans that would otherwise have gone to Egypt, the best quality beans? And they said, well, yeah, of course you can, but we're curious what you're going to do with them. We said, well, we're going to put them in little packs and we're going to give them to people to eat. And they literally laughed in our faces <laughs> because they just thought, 
this was ludicrous that yeah. anyone in Britain would eat these beans that are just you, you should have told them oh yeah I have a salmon farm <laughs> well yeah, we, that, we, we oh could yeah have, obviously <laughs> that, that would have been much more normal to them but um, we, we took our half tonne of beans back to um, my colleague Josiah's house and we literally packed them up at the kitchen table in little packs and we put a little card in the front of each one um, that had some information about the beans and how they're grown here and it had a, a link to a website where we put some recipes and we asked people to try the beans and then fill in the back of the card and send it back to us and we got just an amazing response that you just give it away for free we, we gave them away we took them to food festivals we sold a few through shops we just did whatever we could to get that half ton of beans into people's hands and into kitchens so people would try them so yeah a whole load of different ways of, of getting people to use them and the cards started coming back and it was just uh, amazing to see that almost nobody had come across these beans before although they're grown in fields all around East Anglia where we were getting people to try these beans almost no one had ever tried them and yet when people tried them they they just really liked them and they said they'd love to be able to buy and cook with these beans so we thought we need to be doing more with this this shouldn't just be a trial we need to start a business that can do more to get these beans back into British kitchens so you you went back to the guy that you bought half a ton from and we said okay we're going to buy we're going to buy the other half uh, almost we actually then found a a better processor <laughs> who was cleaning to a higher grade for the the really demanding egyptian market um it's a big so th- it's a huge thing in egypt i mean probably a lot of people know but it's such a big deal there it, it's a daily food as yeah. it would have been in this country so that's the other thing we discovered that although we don't eat these beans here now if you go back several hundred years they would have been a daily part of the British diet and they've been grown here since the Iron Age when the first Iron Age farmers brought crops from the Fertile Crescent and they brought wheat, barley and beans were three of the main first crops they brought and the beans were there as a source of protein and for centuries they would have been pretty much the main source of protein along with dried peas as well in the British diet and would have been eaten every day in dishes like pottage. Um, and they were just ideal as a food because they were harvested dry. You could store them through the year, just harvested them once at the end of the summer, store them through the year, and they would be there as your daily source of protein. And what we think of as the main sources of protein, meat and dairy, would have been more occasional luxury feast foods. But then what happened was as we got richer as a country and agriculture developed and we could also store food better and longer suddenly those luxury foods became available to us every day and everyone who could afford it started eating the luxury foods rather than the daily beans and the beans became stigmatized as the food of the poor because only the really poor people had to keep eating them because they couldn't afford meat and so they just fell out of fashion they were seen as as something you would only eat if you were poor and once a food has that sort of status pretty much nobody unless they really have to will eat it so that's why they dropped out of our diet but as I said farmers like growing them so they kept growing them and if we weren't going to eat them as people they'd feed them to animals and then later to uh, and later salmon that's a a fairly recent thing and and the export market obviously was came a bit later as well 
So when you first started, you had the the broad beans, and you had what, what other? So we started with with the beans. They that was what triggered the whole thing, and we thought we just had a very simple idea. We thought we'd just set up a a simple little business, and we'll buy the beans from the farmers. We'll get them processed, and we'll put them in packs, and we'll sell them into whole food shops. And it'll be very easy. We can carry on doing all the other stuff we were doing at the time of you know working with farmers and working on all these different projects. Um, but it wasn't going to. It didn't turn out to be like that. Instead, it was the start of a journey and the catalyst for realizing there's a whole load of other crops that either already are being produced here or can be produced here, and there's a real opportunity to get more diversity, both into British farming but also into our diets. So, very early on, we realized that there were two types of dried pea that would fit very naturally with the beans as, as products. So, one was the marifat pea which was already pretty well known. We eat quite a lot of marifat peas, primarily in the form of mushy peas. But with the marifat peas, we thought, because once we tried the beans and then we started trying peas and we just got really excited about beans and peas and we realised that mushy peas are great, but there are loads of other things you can do with marifat peas as well. They're, they're among the finest peas in the world and Britain is the, the best country in the world for growing marifat peas. And yet we just treat them as an ingredient you use for one thing and one thing only. But you can do loads of things with it. You can make different dips. You can make hummus-like dips or something like a Japanese pea and wasabi dip, or you can put them in curries or stews or soups. And we wanted to try and sell marifat peas in a way that would encourage people to try doing different things with them rather than just eating them as mushy peas. And we also, right back at the beginning, had the joy of discovering the carlin pea, which is a dark brown dried pea that people still know if they come from very particular parts of the country. So in Lancashire, um, carlin peas are well known because they're used for a, a traditional local dish called parched peas. And in fact, you can go to Preston Market and there are still stalls selling parched peas as a sort of street food. And they're just the carlin peas, the brown peas, boiled up and served in some of their cooking liquor with a little bit of salt and vinegar. Really simple really delicious but completely unknown anywhere apart from parts of Lancashire it's not not very different than than Fulham Damas it's it's yeah an amazing thing that all over the world really there are just very similar ways of cooking pulses with just slight sort of local and regional variations different flavorings and different pulses that are used so yeah it's just like it's like Lancashire Fulham Damas um so Carlin Peas we discovered and we realised they were great eaten as the traditional parched peas, but again, a bit like the marifats and mushy peas, you can use them in all sorts of different ways. And in fact, they're, they're amazingly like a chickpea to eat because they have a sort of nutty flavour and they keep their firm texture when they're cooked. So they keep that sort of bite that a chickpea will keep when it's cooked. So they're great in curries or into salads with roasted vegetables or made into hummus. Um, and yeah, just another really exciting crop that we added to our range right back at the beginning when we we started all of this in 2012. And th- these were things that were grown already. They so were these those were all being grown already, and they just we didn't have the distribution, and they didn't have the kind of public awareness. Yeah, they they just weren't being well. The, the fava beans and the carlin peas were not really being sold at all, except in the carlin peas you could go to shops in Preston and, and buy them, but elsewhere, almost unknown. Um, the fava beans, 
the only places you could buy them in Britain were ethnic outlets where they were being imported from the Middle East and sold. And often those beans imported from the Middle East would have been British beans <laughs> that had been sent to the Middle East, put in packs for sale there, and then brought back here to serve the communities of people from you know, whose origins are in That's those countries amazing. where they're, they're still appreciated. That is so, so no one was selling them as a, as a British, British product. British product. Yeah. Um, and did you, at the beginning, did you have to do a lot of work on marketing and advertising? Or how we, does it work? We, or is it mostly word of mouth? We, we started in a very low-key way. And we didn't have any outside investment. So we, we started on a shoestring and we tried to just build things up in a simple and cost-effective way. So we, and we also, but we knew that we needed to raise awareness and we, we couldn't do that through a massive advertising campaign. We couldn't have, you know, fava beans on TV in, in the middle of Coronation Street. But, but we could um, use social media and use our website and use word of mouth and make little recipe booklets and just use very sort of low-key approaches to getting recipes out there. We identified um, some key people who we thought would appreciate these beans and you were one of them and we sent little packs out to sort of just introduce people to these beans and say look what we've discovered these beans grown in Britain we think they're great please try them tell us what you think and um, you know we'd love it if you use them. So we did all of that and really spent two or three years just slowly building awareness of those beans and peas and, and at the same time mostly selling to to wholesale or to, to private people we were selling so from the beginning we we had a website our own website that we sold through and we used to publish recipes and to get the word out that way and would, and we, you, would you develop the recipes yourself we we initially did develop them ourselves so as you said at the beginning we're I'm not a chef. Um, I'm a, a keen but very amateur cook. Um, but it was just really exciting for us to find recipes, whether they're historic or recipes from abroad, and find, devise our own versions of them and then share those and, yeah, make up our own recipes. Because I, I would think a lot of people just would not know what what to do with them even. No, no. That that was what we needed to to communicate was what you could do with them and... I mean, also encouraging people to come up with their own recipes. And we right back from the beginning when we sent out those packs, we one of the things we asked people is, how did you cook the beans? And we put some initial recipes on our website, sort of simple things like a, a fava bean hummus and full madamas and so on. Um, but we asked people how they cooked them, and some people had used our recipes. But we were just also really struck by how a lot of people had just gone off in their own direction. And we had someone who'd made a a fava bean and passion fruit mousse or you know <laughs> I don't necessarily I haven't tried it I'm not sure I recommend it but it's just fantastic to see the inventiveness um, don't, 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 don't diss it because you're going to try quinoa cake later so yeah so, so we quickly realised that we could do a certain amount of sharing recipes but we also had a lot to learn from, from everyone from the general public who were buying and trying our beans and also from chefs who really gave us fantastic support from the beginning in, in recognising what we were doing and the potential of these beans. So we we got recipes from chefs that we were supplying as well and shared those and yeah, quickly had quite a sort of a, a head of steam of recipes that we, we could share and yeah, get the and word actually, out how to use these. Maybe I'm wrong, but quite quickly, quite a lot of traction. I mean, I think people were very 
positive about it? We, we, yeah, we got very good, a very good reaction. Um, and I mean, I say we built things up slowly. It's really that we, we had a long way to go <laughs> because working with the farmers, really, we need to be working with the farmers to produce a, on a field scale and buy from them to do it most efficiently in sort of full loads, which are 20 tonnes, and then have that processed. And, you know, that's quite a volume to get to. So we had a lot of traction, but it still took a long time to get to the scale where that was all working in the most efficient and smooth way possible. Yeah. And still, I, I mean, I suppose that it's all kind of a year ahead and it's it's an actual crop that takes it is yes yeah. so so to some extent at the beginning we were able to tap into existing supply but then as we went on we were increasingly looking to get organic production up and running which wasn't just didn't exist when we started there was no organic fava bean production for human consumption and a lot of the peas carlin peas i don't think had been grown organically before so we were working with producers and yes it, it takes time you've got a grow the crop before you can sell the product. Yeah. So. And then you need to grow the market as well. Uh, absolutely. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Yeah. Uh, so after the first year, you've added more things to your crop. How, how does it work? Do you, do you hear, oh, there's a guy growing this down in Devon and there's a guy doing this up in, I don't know. Is it just like this? Is it just it, to some extent. So once we started with the beans and the peas, it, it just proved a real catalyst for 
working with farmers and getting to know farmers and farmers getting to know us and contacting us. So right back towards the beginning, we had um, a fantastic farmer called Mark Lee in Shropshire who just phoned us up and he said, I grow organic peas to feed to my cattle, but I just... He feeds them to his cattle and some of them he just sent off by the lorry load to go into the sort of commodity feed market. He just said, I would love to sell, to grow peas for you, to sell to people, to eat. It just be, you know, he just was really excited about the idea of producing peas that people would eat and appreciate rather than just animals eating them. So we got to know him and we've worked with him ever since. He's our main organic pea grower and you know, we're now at a scale where we're taking on other organic pea growers as well. Um, and similarly with the the quinoa, um, we already indirectly knew a farmer called Peter Fairs in Essex, and we thought we'll go and see Peter and talk to him about because we knew he was quite an interesting farmer who did grew unusual crops like borage, for example, which he grows for the sort of medicinal market. Um, so we went to talk to Peter. Also and for shishi restaurants. Uh, uh, well, yes, yeah, yeah. potentially it's. I don't think he's tapped into that market, but he, he should do. He has, he, he does, this is a digression, but he he has some fantastic honey producers because Borage produces really good honey. So yeah. honey producers love putting their hives on his land to produce excellent Borage honey. But we thought we should go and talk to him. And we also knew that he'd been growing quinoa, but not for human consumption. He'd actually been growing quinoa since the 1980s when... A, a really fantastic but quite eccentric plant scientist called Colin Leakey brought the first quinoa back from South America to this country and tried to grow it. And one of the first farmers he got to try and grow this quinoa was Peter Fares. And Peter had been growing this quinoa ever since. Unfortunately, it was like all older varieties of quinoa, it has very high levels of what are called saponins, which are sort of bitter, soapy chemicals which are on the skin of the quinoa and act as a sort of natural pest deterrent, which is good for the plant, but not good for us if we want to eat it, because it's, it's incredibly unpalatable. And you have to either very thoroughly wash the quinoa um, to remove the saponins or to sort of abrasively polish off the whole of the outside of the grain to get rid of all the saponins so it's edible. So, and this was the quinoa that Colin Leakey had been very careful in selecting quinoa from lowland areas of South America, not from the highlands where it's often grown, but from the lowlands because he realised that lowland varieties would be more likely to grow well in Britain. And that was right, but it was a very high saponin variety. So, so what was he growing it for? Well, he was growing it, but he, he, grew, he grew some the first year and tried to eat it and just realised it was utterly disgusting. <laughs> and he couldn't find a, a, a good way, a, a sort of viable way of getting the saponins off. Um, but then he realised that actually birds and pheasants loved the quinoa he was growing and he couldn't keep them out of the fields. So he started growing it and developed quite a good market selling it as seed for other farmers who want to grow sort of conservation mixes of um, plants for wild to encourage wild birds or as cover crops for game. So he's been growing it for since the 80s for this reason. But as a, a quirk of timing just as we went to talk to him he'd been having some success with his trials that he'd been doing of crossing in different varieties to try and reduce the saponin level of his quinoa so he'd actually 
begun to be successful in growing a low creating and then growing a low saponin quinoa that was good to eat with absolutely minimal processing, really just cleaning and no need to take the whole of the outside of the grain off. So he'd found out how to grow this and created this variety or population of varieties, but he didn't have anywhere to sell it. And we went to talk to him at around that time and it naturally fitted with what we were doing. So we've worked ever since with Peter to get his quinoa to market and increase his production and and yeah, sell more British quinoa. I mean, it's. I don't know if any of you tried this quinoa. It's so good. It's really so good. We've, you know, it's not has no connection to Middle Eastern cooking, but we just we <laughs> just yeah. enjoy it so much that it's on the menu anyway. Mm, it does it has a really good because it's a whole grain because we don't have to take the outside of the grain off. It's a whole grain quinoa, so it does have a a, a more complex nutty flavour than more highly processed quinoa. We're just really excited and it was just a fortuitous thing that we went to see Peter at this time. And so then coming back to your question about how we find these crops and farmers, it's through different ways and then sometimes it's more driven by us where we will think there's a crop that we think might grow here but we don't know if anyone's growing it but it'd be quite good to give it a try. And there we do initially very small scale trials we encourage some of our farmers to do very small scale trials see if there's any potential and if there is just slowly year after year scale it up to make sure that it is a viable crop that can't just be grown successfully one year but actually can be grown successfully year after year because it's no good for the farmers if they can grow even four years out of five and then lose the crop on the fifth year we need to make sure that things and the lentils is a good example where yeah. we've, we've started at a very very small scale and then have been slowly increasing and having some success and being encouraged and increasing year on year so I think last year our lentil harvest was about five tons which sounds like quite a lot but where we are now actually five tons will sell really quite quickly um, but and it did we're, actually we, we're we, we, we got a sample when it just when you first had it, we had a sample little bag in the office and it was kicking around for two weeks there. Have you seen it? It was just going around between the office and until we got to try it and we were amazed how good it is and we immediately we called to order. I said, you know, we tried it at home and so it said we have to call them now. They can reserve everything for us. <laughs> but it was too late, it was also Yeah, bad. so that was that was the dark green lentils. We grew two varieties last year and the dark so green nice. we had fewer of and they just all went and the the whole red lentils we do still have. Uh, they're also a good lentil, but not quite. Very good. Um, it was the dark green that really excited you. Yeah, because there's no, there's no. This again, it's the only way for us to to get you know dried pulses that we know that are fresh and we know that are raised well and are local. It was amazing for us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So rather than not not just sourcing, you, you develop a lot of product. We, we do. We, we like work the, with the farmers to yeah. develop crops, but we also then work with the crops to... Process develop, it in different yeah, ways. Yeah, find, find different people who can do different things with them. Like the lovely miso that we tried. That was incredible. Yeah, so that's, that's something we're very excited about, which is a, a fermented fava bean paste where um, we were actually contacted by a, a, a producer of miso in Wales who primarily uses soya, which is the most traditional starting material for miso 
but he heard that we were working with fava beans and he knew that in parts of China they actually favour fava beans to ferment over soya beans and he was really keen to try fermenting soybeans. He's a, he's a very interesting man because he's a, a microbiologist by training so the, the koji, the, the sort of blend of the um, bacteria and the fungus that's used to initiate the fermentation, he creates all of that himself and intimately knows the different strains and which strains of microbes are going to work well on which raw materials. So he got some of harbour beans, developed the appropriate koji to start the fermentation and then did some trials and phoned us up and he was just really excited because he felt that he'd produced one of his best ferments ever. And he sent us some and it was a very simple, um, essentially just fava beans that had been cooked and then had the koji introduced to ferment and fermented just naturally without any sort of refining or anything afterwards. So it was, we, we called it lumpy liquor because it was like a thick black liquid with the lumps of beans still in it. But it just had the most amazing flavour, the sort of deep fermented notes, almost sort of tasting of sherry and all sorts Trico, of complex flavours yeah, in there. So, beautiful. Yeah. Tony, who, who does the fermentation, was excited. And when he sent us some, we were really excited too. So that's a, another example of something quite different that we're doing. British miso. With, with the beans. British miso. So yeah. we haven't quite got it to... Uh, I mean, this, I should think, would get lots of chefs very excited. We, we have got some chefs who are yeah, enthusiastically using it to, yeah. to make as the basis for sort of marinades and dressings and all sorts of things. And what's your ambitions for the future? What do you want to, what is this, what is this still that you haven't managed to do that you want to do? Oh, there's, there's so much. <laughs> so the more we do, the more we realize there is to be done. So we, we, since we first discovered the fava beans, you know, having, having the three of us who started Hobmadod, which we've always liked food and we've always been interested in food, but beans weren't a, a particular interest of ours they were you know one of many foods that we were interested in and having started with the beans we've just become aware and learnt about the the huge diversity of beans across the world and I mean beans are a food that un, has has exceptional levels of diversity so there are literally thousands and thousands if not tens or even hundreds of thousands of different varieties of bean around the world and the number of those varieties that we can actually produce here is is tiny and we'd like to find ways of getting more of those beans produced in this country and bringing some of that great diversity into British farming and into more into our diets without having to rely on on beans being imported and you know many of these varieties just barely known at all so there's a lot to do just with beans but then there are peas um, we had a very exciting visit. a little planet on its own. <laughs> so Peas, where we're based in Suffolk, up the road in Norwich is the John Innes Centre, which just happens to be the national collection of pea varieties. And they, myself and my colleague Josiah, we went on a little trip to see their pea collection, and it was just so exciting. They've got 7,000 varieties of pea in their collection. And we like all of these collections you can um, they're open so you can you can get samples but only very small samples so we looked at the collection and we picked a few peas that looked particularly exciting and the ones that we were really excited by were what's called the Abyssinian pea 
and this is actually a most peas are different varieties of the same species but the Abyssinian pea is actually a, a very closely related but slightly different species and in Ethiopia where they really appreciate their pulses they will eat a lot of peas and then they have the Abyssinian peas on very special occasions they are the most special peas so we selected a couple of varieties of Abyssinian pea from the John Innes Centre collection and I think they gave us um, 23 peas <laughs> so we took those away and we're in the process it's quite a time-consuming process of multiplying those up to the point where we can actually harvest enough to well first of all eat ourselves because we, we when we had those 23 we didn't dare eat we'll any. make a nice little <laughs> but uh, full. We're, we're slowly multiplying them up and we're now we've now got tens of kilos of these peas but and and once we get to that stage we can quite quickly increase the the volume and start getting them into cultivation and then seeing if they'll actually grow here viably and can be just a, a different variety of pea that we can produce so there's that's just one example really of all the exciting possibilities on top of which there are cereals where there's lots of old varieties of cereal and newer varieties of cereal we're working with a, a farmer in Suffolk who Professor Martin Wolf, who's created a population of cereals so unlike most varieties where you have a monoculture of genetically identical plants of the same variety he's growing a population where every single plant in the field is genetically unique and that creates a very resilient crop but also creates a really interesting grain that has a whole range of different flavors and qualities that just sort of shows you the or, or relates to the richness of the, the genetic diversity of it so there's there's a lot of exciting things to come i will add a request from honey and go for chickpeas Chick, chickpeas we'd if we'd, you can we'd like to do something with we did do a very small trial of chickpeas last year and um just a, like a little trial plot to see if they would grow and they grew they grew initially really well and we went to see them when the chickpeas were still green in the pod and we tasted them fresh out of the pod like fresh peas but fresh chickpeas and they were just delicious but they they didn't fully mature in our climate so that variety is not a is not one that we can actually take forward to larger scale production but we're, we're not easily put off so what we'll do instead is look at different varieties and look at varieties that come from parts of the world which have the most similar climate to us because often with these pulses the most challenging thing growing them here is our climate where even if we have a good summer it can get cold and damp quite early on in the autumn and if the pulses haven't fully ripened and matured and dried and have been harvested by then then you can end up just losing the crop which obviously isn't any good for anyone so um just my last question is about the name Hodmadod. So i'm sure you, i'm sure you get asked a lot we we, we do so Hodmadod is uh, the three of us who started the business we're all east anglian by origin and Hodmadod is an east anglian dialect word so depending on whether you're in suffolk or norfolk it either generally means a snail or sometimes a hedgehog so that's why we use a hedgehog as our logo because a hedgehog is a Hodmadod. Um, but it has a, a sort of more fundamental original meaning which is anything that's sort of round or curled up so a, a snail is curled and a hedgehog curls up 
And in fact, sometimes it can also mean an ammonite, which like a snail is curled, or um, curls in a girl's hair would sometimes be called hodmodods. So conceivably, it could describe a, a round bean. pea or bean curled up in its pod. Um, but we also just really like the word. We like the fact that it's a sort of almost forgotten part of East Anglian dialect. It's part of our forgotten heritage, a bit like the beans, which used to be an everyday part of our lives, but were forgotten, and Hobmadod would have been part of our language, but has almost been forgotten. And so that has a great ring to it. We like the sound of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, we hope, memorable and distinctive as well. I'm sure everyone is now aching to eat beans, I think. <laughs> um, we have made some lovely stuff for you. We made this uh, fennel and courgette salad with the smoked quinoa, the smoked uh, Essex quinoa, is that it? It is, yeah, yeah. so we, we didn't talk about the smoking, but that's a, another, another new, fairly yeah. new thing. Uh, we have the broad bean hummus that we've been making every year around this time of year and served with peas and asparagus and honey and co across the road. And it's something that we've only managed to do because of Hodmedo, because we, we could never find it. It's delicious, I think. We have the split pea kofta that we made with parsnip, carrots, and lots of spices. And we serve it with tahini. This is another dish that we, that we, we serve a lot in the restaurant. It's the Diana Henry recipe originally that we stole and changed. Um, and we have some cake, don't we, Bridget? We have uh, chocolate. Yeah. This is actually, it's quite special. It's made with the, the quinoa flour and lots of chocolate. <laughs> just in case, you know, just in case it doesn't work, there are a we lot of chocolate. We don't produce chocolate yet. Sorry? We don't produce chocolate yet. Well, that's, you but know, that's something to aim yeah. for. <laughs> British uh, cocoa beans. Uh, but we, we've tried it actually last week, and it, it's delicious. It works really well. It makes a very, uh, very special texture to the sponge, which I hope you enjoy as uh, much as we did. I want to beseech you all to treat the bean like a queen. All the products are here <laughs> if anybody wants. And a big hand to Nick and a big thank you for coming tonight. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Honey and Coke. We hope you enjoyed it, even if you didn't get to try the food. I promise everything was absolutely delicious. There are some wonderful guests coming up in the next few weeks and will be available to download. So make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes and please leave us a review if you can. That'll be really, really great for us. This show is expertly produced by Hester Kant, music by the great Ellis Russell. If you want to come along to one of our talks, you can join our mailing list on our website, honeyandco.co.uk, or follow us on our social media at honeyandco. 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.